Let's read from Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 9. And if you want to look in your bulletins, it's on page 18 as well. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these God will bring you into judgment. Therefore remove sorrow from your heart and put away evil from your flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity. Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth, before the difficult days come, the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. While the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are not darkened, and the clouds do not return after rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men bow down, when the grinders cease because they are few, and those that look through the windows grow dim, when the doors are shut in the streets and the sound of grinding is low, when one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of music are brought low, also they are afraid of height and of terrors in the way. When the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper is a burden and desire fails. For man goes to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Remember your Creator before the silver cord is loosed, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the well. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that as we dig into it, that our hearts would be drawn to you, and uh, would be realigned by the purposes in your scriptures. Open thou our eyes, that we might behold wondrous things in your law. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's good to be back with you. Uh, the time that Kathy and I had in Tennessee was a mixture of the intense, which absolutely wore us out, and the sublime, which at the same time was strangely uh, refreshing. Uh, Kathy actually spent uh, uh, the two days I was at Presbytery talking nonstop to the women. They were just asking questions all day long. She about lost her voice by the time that I... I got there and the questions continued once I arrived, about 11 hours a day plus. And even though it was exhausting, it was a strangely a refreshing time. And it sounds like Rodney and Gary somewhat caught you up to speed on some of the things that happened at Presbytery. Uh, I think that summit will prove to be a turning point in our denomination. I won't repeat what Rodney and, and Gary said other than to say that there was a lot of soul searching a lot of repenting and praying and discussion of where our denomination perhaps has gone wrong in the past and where we need to be going in, in the future. Anyway, speaking of today's uh, uh, sermon, enjoying life to the fullest, I wanted to point to how Heritage Church ended that summit with a 30-course uh, banquet that was more than just a meal. Uh, all of our senses were drawn out to appreciate the glory and the goodness of God uh, through food and through music and through scriptures and dialogue, and it's one of the reasons they called it a gastronomical liturgy. I've never heard of anything like that before. 
Uh, they knew that some of the elders in our denomination have really experienced a lot of pain, some of them worn out and uh, discouraged, and they wanted to minister their love, their support, their encouragement, minister the scriptures uh, through the medium of uh, this uh, food. Now, I like to think I'm a little bit of a foodie, and not, not like the lanes, you know, not to that degree, but uh, I really <clears throat> appreciate when I see um, food that is well-crafted, aesthetically presented, and in a wonderful atmosphere, and, you know, with music and great dialogue, but I have never in my life seen anything like what they did for us. It's probably non-repeatable, but it ministered to our souls incredibly. My only guilt at the time was that Kathy couldn't be with me to enjoy it. I was thinking, oh, Kathy would just love this. This is such a wonderful, wonderful time. Now, I mentioned guilt because when I was in my early 20s, I don't think I could have gone to a banquet like that without feeling guilty. Now, that may seem strange to you, but through the influence of George Whitfield, I had embraced a kind of asceticism uh, where I thought the only way that I could please God was through sacrifice. And uh, in many ways, my attitude toward life, where if it was painful, then that's God's will, you know, for me to do, was a blasphemy against God's uh, goodness. Now, I'm not discounting sacrifice. We sacrifice a lot. This past week, I think Kathy and I did a lot of uh, sacrificing, but... God wants us to learn to enjoy life to the fullest. And it's not just enjoying the magnificent things like a banquet, but just enjoying the simple things of life. Noticing a hummingbird fluttering outside of a window or being able to drink, you know, a clear, you know, cool water, which you cannot take for granted in a lot of, of countries. As you can tell, I'm not preaching in Revelation today. <laughs> Some of you may be disappointed, but... Uh, because of the, the busyness of our schedule, uh, I'm pulling out an old sermon that I preached in 2006 and that Ken Cope told me I needed to preach every year. I didn't follow his advice, uh, but I'm going to finally get around to preaching it a second time and just reminding those of you who unduly deprive your bodies of joy and pleasure that God loves to minister to the whole man, body and soul. If you're a workaholic, you might, like I have always tended to be, you might be shocked with the realization that God commanded, not just thought it's a good idea, but he commanded rest, not just on the Sabbath day, but for 30 additional days. Those are the festival days of the Old Testament. And when you consider the travel time, you add up the 52 Sundays, the 30 days plus travel time, it's way over 80 days of rest. And my flesh would tend to think, what a royal waste of time. You know, think of all of the things you could have gotten done during those 80 days. But God wants us to have these cycles, these cycles in our life of, yes, intensity and work and labor and taking dominion. But Jesus said, come aside by yourselves and rest a while. He wants these cycles of refreshment for our body and for our spirit. And I think just that picture of those 80 days of rest gives you... A, a striking idea of the kind of uh, Hebrew culture that was not so highly driven as our American culture tends to be. So anyway, that is background. This morning I'm going to look at how to enjoy life without guilt. 
and why it is that overindulgers like Solomon did not enjoy life. We want to trace God's delight in delighting us, but also see that a failure to delight in the giver robs us of our ability to fully delight in his good gifts. I want you to turn with me, first of all, to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to be bouncing around uh, in the book of um, Ecclesiastes and give you a little bit of an overview of the book. And I want to, first of all, show you a contrast that is an interpretive key of this book. Uh, If you take a look at verse 1, he describes a whole bunch of things that are seen as under heaven, under heaven. Then if you look at verses 16 and following, you're going to see a whole bunch of things that he describes as being viewed under the sun. Those are not synonyms. Those are two quite opposite ways of viewing life. If the physical sun is the highest thing in your life, in other words, you're excluding the God of heaven, if the physical sun is the highest thing in your life, then your practical deism is going to make everything in life eventually be meaningless and empty. Verses 16 and following show only emptiness, but contrast that with the phrase under heaven in verse 1. That is living continually under something that transcends the physical creation, that transcends the physical sun. That is living quorum Deo, before the face of God. It's living under heaven And there is meaning and purpose for absolutely everything in those next few verses. There is a time for this and a time for that. There is meaning and purpose for even death. Now let's focus on verses 11 and following. Chapter 3, verses 11 to 13. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. Enjoying life is a gift of God. That's why Solomon did not enjoy life when he was backslidden. You can't. God's not going to bless a backslider. It is a gift of God. You cannot fully enjoy, uh, find enjoyment in a flower a sunset, or poetry without God's gracious help. Now, some of you might agree because you hate poetry, but we're, we're talking about enjoying poetry, okay? Enjoying your labors, enjoying vacuuming your carpet as you do it as unto the Lord with a sense of His smile of approval upon what you are doing. Chapter 2, verses 24 through 25. Solomon says, there is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. When you truly receive food and drink from the loving hands of a gracious God, there is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy the good of his labor. Now that was said by a man who found nothing but vexation of spirit and vanity in his labor. He didn't enjoy that good. Why? Because he was, during his backslidden years, failing to live those things in God under heaven. But if you are living under heaven, it doesn't matter what your circumstance, whether rich or poor, you can enjoy life and you need nothing better. Chapter 9 says, Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your fleeting life. 
God's not against pleasure. He wants us to enjoy life in all of its facets, all of our days. Chapter 11 says, Truly the light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to behold the sun. Imagine that. He's finding pleasure in going out and seeing such a beautiful sun. That's Solomon in his non-backslidden years. This was not always true of Solomon. Using the past tense, Solomon says that he knew what boring was all about. His life for years was filled with vanity and emptiness. Now, you might think, wow, that's impossible for a guy as busy as, as a Solomon to be bored. But Solomon said that he hated life and he hated his labors. He says in verse, chapter 2, verse 17, Therefore I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and grasping for the wind. When God was left out, he hated work, he hated life, he hated his fleeting pleasures. When keeping busy didn't help, he turned to entertainment. And chapter 2 says that too left him cold and empty. Surely it would be exciting to be as wise as Solomon. I've often wished for that. Lord, give me the wisdom of Solomon. He's denied it. But oh well. Um, he said, for in much wisdom is much grief. That's chapter 1, verse 18. Okay, Solomon knew how empty, sensual pleasures could leave. In fact, when you go through this book, you realize just about everything that Americans pursue so that they can be happy, so that they can be fulfilled, he has tried and he said, it didn't work. It does not work if you are not living it under heaven. When you look at banquets to satisfy your emptiness, it will leave you with a spiritual emptiness. But when your heart is satisfied in God, you have a heightened pleasure. You have the potential for a heightened pleasure in simple things like a, a fudge a brownie or a juicy steak. Okay, Let's look at the opposite extreme, though. Not self-denial, which was where I was at in my 20s, in fact, I so abused my body that uh, I, I damaged my body for, it took a number of years to recuperate. You know, 40-day fasts, 30-day fasts, all of that kind of stuff, and not knowing how to handle my body. So that's self-denial, but self-indulgence, really humanistic self-denial and self-indulgence have the same problem at root. One of the pastoral journals that I used to receive, told a parable that I think uh, illustrates our attempts to live under the sun rather than living under heaven, seeking the gifts rather than the giver. It told about a truck driver who just seemed like an ordinary truck driver, except every stoplight that he would uh, come to, he would pop out of the cab, go with a baseball bat to the back of his his uh, truck and beat like crazy on it. As soon as the light turned green, he'd run back into the cab and drive on. Already you can tell this is a, an apocryphal story, right? Because uh, he repeated this at every place. But the journal says, A fellow following him in a car was puzzled by this bizarre behavior and asked him at one light why in the world he was beating on the side of his truck. Oh, said the driver. The answer is simple. I have a two-ton tr two truck, and I'm carrying four tons of canaries in it. That means that I have to keep two tons of them in the air at all times. Okay, maybe you feel... Like you're carrying around two extra tons of canaries, right? And when things get too heavy to bear, like Solomon, you try to stir life up a little bit with some activity. When you feel weighed down by those canaries, what do you do? You go out shopping and you buy something and it makes you feel better, at least for a while. Or 
Uh, when you're feeling weighed down, you sit in front of the television set and you veg out, and it makes you feel better, at least for a while. Or you get busy, or you stuff your face at the refrigerator, right? So it's not just the ascetics and the Stoics uh, who miss out on real living. The hedonists and the Epicureans do as well. If you're trying to cope with the extra load of canaries, like Solomon was, then I think that this passage that I read in, in chapter 11 through 12 at the end of the book is a passage you need to think about. Let's begin at chapter 11, verse 9. The first thing that this passage, and really the whole book of Ecclesiastes, makes clear is that enjoyment does not just happen. Vanity does just happen. All on its own, vanity can happen. Uh, but not enjoyment. If we're to learn to enjoy life, then we need to take that responsibility squarely on our own shoulders. Don't depend upon others. You are responsible to enjoy life. Now, my Bible makes chapter 11, verse 9, through chapter 12, verse 8, all one paragraph. And this section starts with a command. Rejoice. doesn't say, beg God to make your life less miserable. doesn't say, hope that a friend will come along. It doesn't say, get married so that you can start to enjoy life. It doesn't say, pray for healing so that you can begin to enjoy life. Now, Ecclesiastes actually assumes everybody's going to have pain and suffering and aging and difficult times, but it still gives you the responsibility to rejoice. Now, that may seem like a burden at first, like, oh, one more thing to do. Pastor Kaiser wants me to rejoice now, and I don't feel like rejoicing. No, the very fact he commands you to rejoice means you have hope. By his grace, you can rejoice. This is his will for you. He desires you to have rejoicing, <clears throat> and he desires it in the very circumstances that humanists uh, think is vanity. Now, of course, this is consistent with the rest of the Bible. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. Now, you might think of a condition in your life in which you can't rejoice. Well, you'll have to take up your argument with the Apostle Paul. He said, rejoice in the Lord always. Yes, even when your job is miserable. Yes, even when your spouse is not getting along with you too well. Yes, even when your finances are down. Rejoice in the Lord always. I did a quick count of the number of times that the command to rejoice occurs in the Bible, and I counted well over 100 times God commands us to rejoice. It is a responsibility that we have. He does not want us to have a dour and sour Christianity. He commands us to rejoice. Okay, that's a responsibility. Second, Solomon says there's no need to wait until you are older before you can begin to rejoice. Now, they actually looked at life a lot differently than we do. It seems like everybody nowadays uh, admires youth and they want to stay youthful forever. But back then, they were dying to get old. I mean, they just really looked forward to getting old. Um, and um, they might have thought that really living is being able to leave home. And once they left home, they thought, well, really living is when dad passes on the family farm to me. And when they got the family farm, they might think, oh, wow, really living would be when I'm like one of those guys who sits in the gates of the city and who has enormous influence in society. And what Solomon is saying is don't ever wait for happiness to happen. 
The last phrase of verse 10 says, for childhood and youth are vanity. And in chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, he says, old age is vanity. It's all vanity. Okay? Waiting will not solve anything. Waiting will not get rid of vanity. Vanity can exist anywhere and at any time. It's one of the chief messages of the book of Ecclesiastes. You can be bored and empty as a youth, or you can be bored and empty as an old man. So chapter 11, verse 9 says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. So the key, one of the keys to enjoying life when you are old is having learned how to enjoy life when you are young. The key to enjoying life with a, a donut in your hand is having learned how to enjoy life when the grocery store is closed and you don't have any donut in your hand, right? Uh, the key is being focused on, enamored with, centered on God. One of the greatest problems Christians face is that they are waiting to enjoy life. They're waiting for something. And I found this over and over again in my counseling. You've got to fix my wife so that I can enjoy life or vice versa. You've got to fix my husband so that I can begin to enjoy life. I usually tell counselees, if you've come here to glorify God, I can help you. But if you've come here only to fix the pain, I don't think I'm the man for you. Uh, the answers I'm going to give actually might initially be more painful than what you're going through presently. But if you want to glorify God, even in the midst of that pain, that suffering, that discomfort, you can learn to enjoy God. The truth is, as long as you seek for something else, some people want an automobile, or they want more money, or they want this or that, uh, it, it will elude you. Christ warned us, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. That's Luke 12, verse 15. And I'm convinced if you think you need even one dollar more in order to be happy, you will never be happy. You'll never be happy. Life does not consist in your possessions. Some might think, I'll truly be happy if I could only have a child. And Christ gives exact opposite. Mark 10 says that one of the ironies of life is that you always feel your last when you put yourself first and your desires first. But when you give up, you forsake your wife, your husband, your house, your children, all things for my sake and the gospels, God will give exactly those same things back to you 100-fold. He's not going to give you 100 wives or 100 husbands. That'd be sheer misery. He's going to enable you to enjoy those things 100 times more, right? When you put yourself last and you say, Lord, I'm just giving it all to you. I want to relate to my wife as a stewardship trust. I want to relate to my house as a stewardship trust. How can I do this best? When you begin to catch that kingdom vision, all of a sudden excitement begins to take over and you begin to enjoy simple things you previously just took for granted that you did not enjoy. Verse 9 goes on to say that attitude and planning is key. It says, walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. Or as the margin says, as you see to be best. In other words, your heart attitudes and planning make all the difference in the world. We cannot just let life happen to us. We need to evaluate what is the best use of our time and energies. Evaluate what resources we have. Make decisions that are consistent with that. And I think too many people do the exact opposite. When they come home tired, they just don't want to do anything, so they plop down into an easy chair, 
And what's the first thing in front of them? They're looking for something to do. Okay, there's the TV there. And they start channel surfing through the channels. And they don't know what they're going to watch. But the first thing that hits them, uh, they, they follow that. That's a very passive approach to enjoyment of TV. And I'm not against watching movies. But we need to be very deliberate about what we do and not be passive. Same people will walk into the kitchen. No idea what they're going to eat. They just... What is there here to eat? They just start grazing, whatever, uh, whatever happens to hit them. This verse indicates that our heart should guide our eyes to a life of enjoyment, and as the margin indicates, we need to evaluate what is best. Your attitudes and planning, I think, make a big difference. Plan your day. Plan to enjoy your day to God's glory. Uh, there can be all kinds of lawful options, but is it the best option? It's one of the reasons I refuse to answer people's questions when they say, Phil, Pastor Kaiser, whatever, can I do this on the Sabbath? Well, I'll give them the principle of the Sabbath, and I'm not going to answer that question. You go to the Holy Spirit, now that you know this principle of the Sabbath, and you ask Him, what is the best way? Not what's just lawful and I can skate by it. What's the best way in terms of priorities that I can keep the Sabbath? I think the Holy Spirit will answer that for you. I don't need to be a rancher man. Because the moment I say no or yes, either one, they're going to start arguing with me. Now, I've given up on arguing people over the Sabbath. Uh, I think the Spirit can convict you quite well. So plan your day. Plan to enjoy your day to God's glory. But Solomon doesn't want to be misunderstood as saying that any impulse of the heart or any way you see as being right will be enjoy bring enjoyment. He says, but know that for all these, God will bring you into judgment. And this point, I think, needs to balance the previous one. It's when our heart and our plans conform to God that true enjoyment comes. As Psalm 37, verse 4 says, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your heart. So when your heart and your plans are as they should be, then far from being frustrated, you constantly be given the desires of your heart. So that's kind of the preface um, Solomon says you can enjoy life now, and if you're waiting for something to happen, then you're not approaching the subject biblically. But what are the steps to enjoying life? And we're going to just quickly go through these. He says in verse 10, therefore remove vexation from your heart. Now, the idea of the Hebrew word for vexation is heart resistance to something that can't be resisted. Okay? This is a major hindrance to enjoying life. It's getting frustrated and anxious and resentful or angry over things you simply cannot change. Okay? It's the result of trying to take God's providence upon your shoulders. Your shoulders are not broad enough to wear God's providence, period. As long as you're trying to do what is God's work alone, like changing your spouse's heart, for example. Now, you can minister God's word. But if you think it's your job to change your spouse's heart or any of the other impossible things, you're taking on God's providence, you're going to end up frustrated, guaranteed. Some people get frustrated because they cannot change the humanism that's in the American civil government in Washington, D.C. Hello, you're never going to be able to change that. Now, God can change a king's heart just like rivers of water, right? But that's not our responsibility. Others get frustrated because they can't change the way their boss thinks. Others get bitter because of mistreatment. But while people can abuse you, and while they may refuse to change, only you can let them make you frustrated, angry, and bitter. Only you can do that. 
Refuse to allow your heart to be controlled by the evil that is out there. Remove vexation from your heart. Psalm 37 says it won't do any good. It only causes harm. Be faithful with what is your responsibility and relax in that. Actually, this has been one of my problems in the past. Uh, And there have been times I have literally just taken a piece of paper, and I've done this over and over, so do I really need to do the piece of paper? No, I can do it in my head, but I'll draw a line down the middle, and I'll write my responsibilities in the left-hand column, God's responsibilities in the right-hand column, and about 80 to 90% of the things I'm anxious over are in God's column. And so then I repent and say, Lord, I'm taking over your job. Please forgive me. That's your providence. I'm going to do my responsibility and trust you for the results. Sometimes we have to do this over and over again until our heart finally uh, gets it. So this is the first critical thing. Do not be stressed out, anxious, frustrated, vexated over what you cannot change. A second step is to pursue holiness. Chapter 11, verse 10 goes on to say, and put away evil from your flesh. Now, ironically, a lot of Christians think the exact opposite. They think God's being mean, and if there is anything more fun that we're doing, he can take away. God's probably going to do it. Uh, God wants to make us miserable. And they think that if only I could break God's law, I'd have more freedom. I'd have more fun. But think of it this way. That's like a train that's designed for tracks saying, I want to be free, and I'm going to jump the tracks. Well, all of a sudden it becomes mired in the mud and it's useless. It can't have any power. It's not doing what it was made to do. We were made for God's law. We were made for God's law. And the only way we can have maximum freedom, maximum speed, maximum usefulness is as we pursue holiness. And this is one of the reasons why Jesus said in the Gospel of John, the only way to have your cup of of joy full to overflowing is by keeping his commandments. Holiness is an absolute must. The pursuit of holiness is a must. So any view of grace, and there's a lot of counterfeit views of grace out there, even in Reformed circles, in the grace movement, any view of grace that neglects this phrase will in the long run rob you of enjoyment, not enhance it. So put away evil from your flesh. The next step is to remember that happiness is not dependent on physical vitality. Now this is so important for Americans who idolize youth. We need to be reminded of this. He says, for childhood and prime of life are vanity. The idea that youthfulness is essential to enjoying life is such a trap for modern Americans. Women start getting really insecure when they start getting these, you know, bulges and wrinkles and varicose veins, and men start getting really insecure when they start getting bald and they can't play basketball as aggressively as they used to. Why? Because they're idolizing youth. And, and Solomon says, forget about that. It, it, it's just not something we should be focused on. It's the inner man that is the key to enjoying life. So don't equate happiness with physical vitality. Fourth, if you don't learn to enjoy life now, things won't get any better. So he immediately jumps from calling youth vanity to saying that old age is vanity when it is sought for fulfillment. And so in chapter 12, verses 2 through 7, it's just a, I won't take the time to go over it, but it's just a graphic description of the deterioration of the body over time. You know, the grinders of the teeth and the guys looking through the window shutters, that's eyesight that's failing. it's, It's wonderful metaphors in there that describe sight loss, hearing loss, taste loss, loss of teeth and strength. You think, well, surely you can't enjoy life if you can't taste things anymore and if you don't have sight and hearing. 
He said, no, that's actually, that's actually not true. If you do not start in youth, though, enjoying your life every day, you won't be able to get there when you get to old age. And if you don't start in old age enjoying uh, life to the fullest, you're not going to get there before the, the uh, silver cord is loosed, uh, a metaphor for death. Chapter 11, verse 8 tells us that people can live many years and rejoice in them all. That's God's purpose for you, to enjoy life every day of your life. But he ends with a repeated phrase in verse 6, which I think is key to this whole sermon. Remember now your Creator. In verse 1, he, he told the youths to remember God now. And in verse 6, he tells the older people to remember God now. It's when we live all of life before the face of God that life begins to take on meaning, and we really enjoy it. The simple principle is that seeking after happiness is an end in itself is the surest way to miss out on happiness. When I was in Ethiopia, I used to collect butterflies. I, had a, I have a friend who brought his butterfly collection. Uh, he's here in Nebraska uh, from Ethiopia. It's gorgeous. It's just an amazing collection. But when I first started this hobby, oh man, I wore myself out. I was just running, chasing like crazy, and somebody told me how to catch butterflies. You don't pursue after them aggressively like that. In fact, sometimes if you're still, those butterflies will land right on your body, just like in the picture in uh, your outline there. And that's much the way it is with enjoyment of life. When we seek it as an end in itself, we ironically end up losing it. However, when we seek God as the end in himself, ironically, he gives us the byproduct of happiness and joy. Happiness is a byproduct, not a goal. But never forget, God wants you to enjoy life. Satan may want you to doubt that, but God wants you to enjoy life to the fullest. And so the answer to the first catechism is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. May each of us learn how to enjoy life by enjoying God. Amen. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the constant reminders that we need to get back on track, and I pray that our lives would get back on track and that You would give what First Peter uh, speaks about is that joy indescribable and full of glory that we can have even in the midst of persecution where we need not change the outward circumstances of life to fully enjoy life to your glory, but uh, we need to press deeper and deeper into you. And so I pray that this, your people, would be a joyful people and a happy people, a people that glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.